Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to The Living Church Podcast. As a minister, as a leader in the church, as an invested layperson, as someone within a family system, or with a sense of Christian awareness about the lives of others, understanding trauma and how it works can be an invaluable tool in the emotional and spiritual toolbox. So as we're navigating life and ministry right now, rounding the second half of 2021, how can we understand and love better the people in our lives who have experienced or are experiencing trauma? How is a traumatic experience unique from other difficult experiences? How does it affect our communities and churches? And how can we move into God's gifts of healing? As we'll explore in our conversation today, the church has a lot to offer here. My conversation partner was Dr. Warren Kinghorn. Warren is the Esther Cauliflower Associate Research Professor of Pastoral and Moral Theology at Duke Divinity School. He's the co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, and he's Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center. Yep, you heard me right. I found someone for this episode who is both a psychiatrist and a theologian. Ding, ding, ding. So we got pretty lucky. A final note about today's episode. In talking about trauma, we do not go into any explicit detail about forms of trauma or traumatic experiences. Still, even talking about the topic of trauma may evoke strong feelings in folks who are trauma survivors. So for our listeners, please make sure it's the right time for you for this episode, that you're grounded, that you have the support you need to engage this topic, and that you feel ready to listen in. And at any point, if you need to click us off, please do. This is a rich conversation that I really enjoyed. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy it too. Dr. Warren Kinghorn, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you so much, Amber, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Let's start our conversation today with some basic definitions. First of all, what is trauma? This is a really important question uh, because underlying that question is whose experience uh, gets listened to in trauma conversations. Uh, Judith Herman, who's written a book called Trauma and Recovery, that I think is probably uh, the most important kind of text that, that kind of defines the field of trauma psychology, uh, said that traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. And I really like that description. It's not quite a definition, but I like that description because it it, it evokes all sorts of kinds of experiences. It, first of all, that we do have ordinary systems of care that give us as humans a sense of control and connection and meaning, and that various kinds of experiences that we go through, either individually or collectively, can erode those and can, in some cases, overwhelm those. And when those systems of care are overwhelmed, I think that's when we're getting into the realm of experience that we might call trauma. Um, There is a narrower definition of trauma that you see in the official psychiatric description of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, And that is narrower. It says basically trauma, uh, the kind of traumatic experience that gives rise to PTSD would be exposure to actual or threatened death or serious injury or sexual violence. And that might include directly experiencing the traumatic event. It might include witnessing the event as it occurred to others. It might even include learning about the event uh, that's happened to a close family member or loved one. Uh, Or it might be just exposure to really extreme details of the event. Um, And that that kind of experience often gives rise to the kinds of experiences that we call PTSD in psychiatry. So that would be like intrusive thoughts and avoidance of memories and cues of the event or uh, negative alterations in mood and cognition, which is basically, you know, having uh, your thoughts and feelings sort of feel uncontrollable uh, or kind of uh, emotional reactivity and hyper reactivity. Um, that would be the way which in psychiatry we would define PTSD. But I think it's really important that PTSD doesn't exhaust what the effects of trauma, that trauma shows up in lots of other ways also that may not be included in the description of PTSD. So I'm wondering, what's the difference between something that's hard, something you've been through that, oh, oh this is going to leave a bit of an effect, but I'm kind of working through it. What's the difference between that and something that is traumatic? How can we tell, you know, this is something in the course of life that maybe in the long run is not something that's going to really stick with me? Um, and when can we tell that, okay, maybe something's sticking here. Maybe this experience is having a particular kind of effect on me that we would call uh, traumatic. Uh, even those who are trauma advocates and clinicians who work with trauma survivors can get caught in a trap when it comes to defining what is and isn't trauma. Uh, and you see this in some trauma advocacy communities and, and others where uh, different experiences that people uh, associate with trauma are very different. So being at war is very different from the experience of childhood sexual abuse, for example, which is itself different from being in an abusive intimate partner relationship and other contexts of trauma, which is itself different from being exposed to a kind of, kind of extreme repeated racist uh, 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 mistreatment over the course of a lifetime. And so the better way to think about that is trauma is not one thing, but it's rather a range of experiences. And it's not even that important that it all go under the name trauma. So I think about a 
continuum of trauma and stressors. The trauma and stress are on a continuum. And that incorporates a lot of different kinds of experiences, some of which would be classified as traumatic events in the PTSD definition, and some of which may not. Like racial microaggressions may not meet the PTSD definition of trauma, but they are nonetheless uh, life-altering and can result in post-traumatic experience. So I think the better question to ask is not like, is this experience or this range of experience trauma or not? But it's to it's to ask someone who is living with difficult experiences and memories of difficult experience, um, what is it? Uh, what is it about this experience that makes the word trauma resonate with you? How would you associate your experience with trauma? What is it that makes your experience traumatic? And and then in a very open-ended way to listen. And that's what's really important, not defining kind of tight boundaries about what is and isn't trauma. What is it about the world that we live in uh, uh, causes certain kinds of experience afterward and also allows for certain kinds of growth afterward? And, and so to get less involved in the definitions and more in just what does it mean to live in a world that's marked by uh, a lot of hard experience and adversity? Not being a therapist, or uh, a psychiatrist myself, certainly to try to diagnose somebody else is really dangerous. But if I have someone that I care about, someone who's in my parish or a friend, a family member, or even myself, can that be, how good is it or, or perilous is it to try to say, hmm, I wonder if this has been a traumatic experience for this person, you know, what good could it do to kind of inquire about that, either for myself or someone else. Going back to Judith Herman's uh, statement that trauma, traumatic events overwhelm the ordinary systems of care to give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning. I mean, and when we go through hard experiences, uh, in the context of those ordinary systems of care, of the care of others, of the care of our communities, of our own, um, of our care of ourselves and our bodies, of uh, the capacity to tell stories and to receive care. Um, as humans, we uh, often, perhaps even usually, uh, find ways to, to heal, to mourn, to grieve, to in some ways um, find ways to incorporate those experiences into the rest of our lives and then to, and then to be able to move forward uh, toward purposes and goals. But when those traumatic events are, um, are, are, in, are so intense or when they're so prolonged or when they come at a particularly vulnerable developmental age, or when those systems of care, those communities of support are just lacking for various reasons, then that, that kind of, that, that innate human ability to heal, uh, to be able to mourn and to grieve and to be able to move on does get stuck. And I think that's part of what happens with traumatic memories. So neurobiologists will talk about how uh, when there's particular traumatic events, those memories can be very vivid as if they've just happened. And that's because those memories are not then kind of incorporated into other memories of our lives in ways that allow our lives to go on as a coherent story. And so I think when we when there's a sense of like something happened to me and I'm and it's it's really just dominating my life. I can't seem to uh, to move on. I can't seem to uh, to to move past this. And I think that's where the language of trauma is very appropriate, whatever the experience. And I think seeking care, both mental health care and other forms of care, uh, to try to kind of restore those systems of connection that allow us to move on is very important also. Hmm. It's as if we are created with 
the capacity to do and and process complicated, very complicated and very difficult things. And then in this um, in this veil of tears, we're also given uh, community um, gifts of human connection, of um, familial and um, friendly support. And even simple things like um, food, having a consistent, comfortable bed to sleep in, clothing that's um, sufficient and comfortable and maybe even, you know, beautiful or attractive. These are all things that add to the ability essentially to, to feel normal. But when we've had traumatic experience, this is something, this experience is something that interrupts our ability to really, um, know all those things and have all those things and enjoy all those things that we've been given. And, uh, it actually, honestly, Warren kind of makes me upset to think about. It makes me feel upset. Like, uh, I like the world is broken and to even just, you know, beyond becoming a saint, I mean, just having some, some natural, humble, you know, I feel loved, I feel safe. Um, and I can reach out in, in love to others, normal human functioning that that gets interrupted all the time for people. And that's part of, um, the world we live in and the world that Jesus came into and, and came to heal so profoundly. And, you know, it's interesting to me too, that trauma certainly isn't new. Um, we didn't discover it when the, the DSM-4 came out, um, which is the, DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of Mental Disorders. People have had to live with these things in ages past. Um, they've had war. They've had um, terrible experiences in ages past and find ways to cope or to not cope without the resources that we have now, which are so rich and wonderful. Well, what you just said, Amber, was so beautiful and so beautifully put around that the, the, the reality of trauma makes you angry. And it makes me angry, too. And it, it should make us angry that we have a, a world in which like, giving and receiving care is part of what it means to be human, including uh, knowing and being able to, to know and to feel the love of God. And uh, traumatic events uh, uh, are events that often occur at places of extreme vulnerability and make people distrust that the world is a good world uh, that's governed by a good God and uh, distrust those systems of giving and receiving care. One way, in fact, to understand the characteristic reactions of PTSD, like isolating and avoiding and, and uh, even the being hypervigilant, is that in a world that is experienced as profoundly out of control and profoundly dangerous, in which one can't trust, even maybe those whom one thought one should be able to trust, uh, then uh, PTSD is a way of maintaining enough safety and control simply to be able to survive. And so the fact that traumatic experiences uh, do that and that people live lives uh, characterized by just this uh, trying to do whatever it takes to survive a world that's experienced as in some ways profoundly evil, I think should, should make us angry. And it also should make us hopeful for the possibility of healing. Dear podcast listener, are you also a preacher? Then listen up. 
The Living Church wants to give you a free month of our weekly digital sermon prep toolkit, The Living Word Plus. Just click the link in the show notes to sign up and use the coupon code LISTENUP to get the first month of your subscription for free. Subscriptions are month by month, so you can cancel anytime. If you haven't tried it yet, The Living Word Plus is chock full of food for thought for Sunday's upcoming sermon with articles, sermons, and classic texts all related to the lectionary readings for the coming Sunday. It's curated by Living Church editors just for liturgical preachers and teachers. Again, podcast listeners get the first month free. Click the link in the show notes and use the coupon code LISTENUP at checkout. It seems to me as you were talking, I just was having this mental image of uh, a tree and and something that someone's dealing with is is like this tree and things that are described in the DSM, these these phrases and diagnoses that many of us are familiar with to some extent or another, they're not really the roots. They're more like the leaves. They're a description of what's seen once it comes above the surface, um, the things that we're feeling, the things that we're doing, the things we're having a hard time doing. Whereas when you look at the leaves, which could be multiple diagnoses, maybe um, good care involves asking well and wisely and gently and in relationship, what's at the roots and how can I be ministering in one way or another as a family member, as a pastor, as a therapist, as a friend, how can I be inquiring about as you know, appropriately and ministering to the roots? So with natural disasters and with illness, um, one way, you know, one question that church leaders might be asking is, well, understanding trauma uh, how can it help me think about what what might be kind of going through my community uh, during this time? Trauma is a part of every congregation and community. So there is mm. no congregation, there is no classroom, there's no neighborhood, there's no city where there are not uh, a high uh, proportion of people who've survived significant forms of trauma. So, I mean, just in the U.S., you know, you have... Uh, uh, you know, one in five um, women have experienced completed or attempted rape in the course of their lifetimes. Uh, you know, approximately um, uh, one in four women and one in seven men report severe physical violence in intimate partner relationships. Uh, you know, somewhere around uh, one in five women have experienced some form of sexual assault uh, or attempted sexual assault by their 18th birthday. And so, all of these uh, these forms of trauma, and uh, you know, among uh, veterans who've been deployed to places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, somewhere around um, you know it's fifteen to twenty percent will meet criteria for post traumatic stress disorder. This is a lot of people in every single community, and so one thing to just know is that there is no chance that a pastor or a clergy person will be giving a sermon, or will be teaching an adult education class, or for that matter, a group of teenagers and not have a significant portion of people who are presently or in the past having survived trauma. And so that means that like particular kinds of things, when, when there are difficult scriptures, you know, texts of terror in scripture, descriptions of war or sexual violence, when there are current events going on, like these are going to be resonating in the room. And so, uh, and so when they're avoided, as, as they often are, because they're hard to talk about, then that can leave trauma survivors feeling even more alone. When they're talked about in trauma-informed ways, it can be really profoundly healing and life-giving and freeing 
for those who, for whom this is everyday present experience. And, and to hear that named and acknowledged is just profoundly meaningful and validating and really a step toward healing. I think another thing that you said is that trauma is not just individual. It's never just individual. It is lodged in communities, and that happens in lots of different ways. But again, these, these systems of care that give people a sense of control, connection, and meaning that Judith Herman writes about are not just individual systems. They're, they're ways that we're knit together in, our, in the fabric of our communities, and that would include like religious communities and congregations. It would include how communities care for one another and bear one another's burdens and mourn with each other and support each other in times of loss and adversity. And I think when there is just layer on layer of compounded adversity and trauma, you know, when when um, uh, the rawness of racial violence is compounded by the isolation of the pandemic, and they may be compounded by natural disaster and compounded by pre-existing trauma that people bring in, it, it stretches the systems of care to the point where they do get overwhelmed. And, and then people start to feel alone and abandoned and uh, lonely and uncared for. And that then I think brings out maybe some of the the least fortunate aspects of ourselves as humans when we're just trying to, str- to struggle just to survive, just to make it. And, uh, and it, it stretches our communities. And so I think thinking about trauma as a collective whole, like what is the health of my community right now? How can we find ways to care for each other? How can we find ways to remember together, to mourn together, to lament together, not to just pretend that everything's okay, but to find ways to, to, to bear with each other together and then to seek beauty together, I think is, is the way that maybe all churches can be thinking about uh, this like slow emergence from the pandemic that we find ourselves in right now. So in terms of being intentional about the community to, let's say I was, you know, the rector of a church or the director of a Christian education program, you know, what have you, I'm looking at my community that I'm responsible for, or maybe I'm a bishop and I'm asking, okay, what are the specific things that we have gone through in the past couple years? And then hopefully, um, you know, I've always thought understanding the history of the place you're in is really important. The actual yes. land, as well as the cityscape, um, you know, is my church built on top of the burial ground of some indigenous people, you know, for example, or, yes. or is the like, you know, financial district of my town built on top of, you know, a sacred site or, um, you know, how have people been treated here? Um, how has love flourished or not in this community over the decades and centuries that I've been here? So knowing a little bit about that and then saying, okay, well, now we've had these recent things happen. Do I see any patterns in what we're experiencing now versus um, how this community, what this community has experienced in the past, or maybe what we've survived in the past? And how can we, as you said, not avoid talking about or addressing in some way the most painful things, but um, in a sense, bringing them to, bringing them to into the sanctuary, bringing them to the altar even and entering in. This actually reminds me, Warren, of a story that I read not too long ago, and it involved a woman who had a, uh, who lost her brother to a terrible car accident. And this experience was very traumatic for her. It, it affected her daily functioning. She'd have dreams. She'd have, she didn't actually see the accident, but she would have flashbacks as if she had seen it. Uh, she would have had very vivid, you know, uh, mental images of the accident and was, was terribly grieving. 
she was part of a church, um, liturgical church, celebrate the Eucharist every week. And she found that when she would come to the Eucharist, it took on a new meaning for her that was very difficult to see the broken body, um, the blood of Christ. I mean, just the words were, um, I don't know if these were her words. She may have said that they were triggers for her, but she was also aware, and this is amazing, and this is where this flips into hope, as as you mentioned, because often folks that have been through trauma have developed incredible skills of resilience and um, are able are able to like face difficulty in amazing ways. And she decided instead of she could have taken a break from church for sure and said like this is too much for me right now. Um, I need to spend some time in the woods or something. But she said, you know what? God was aware of trauma and of human hurt when he gave us the sacraments, when he gave us scripture, when he gave us the structure of the church. There's something here for me. And so she she remained with those very, very unpleasant feelings and sensations in her body during worship. And she found that the Eucharist was actually, because of the violence of Christ's death, actually transforming and healing her own experience of having lost her brother in a car accident. So, you know, what can I do as a church leader? We've already talked a little bit about that in relation to communities. And you, Warren, you're a theologian as well as a therapist, like golden combination here. So what are some special gifts and graces that you have seen that God has given the church to share with those living or grappling with trauma? Like a few resources, I think, that Christians can bring bring out of our own tradition to these broader conversations about trauma. And I think the first really uh, maps onto exactly what you said about uh, really being able to understand how trauma is not just embodied, but it's also placed that trauma inhabits places in particular ways and histories. And so I'd say one resource is that of recognition. Uh, Recognition, as I said before, that those who come into a a church or religious community uh, bear significant histories of trauma, but also recognition of, just as you said, that trauma uh, has a a sustained history in places also. We have a student, uh, alumna here from Duke Divinity who is now working with the Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama is involved in their soil reclamation projects around racial terror lynchings. And uh, in that work uh, that's you know, well-reported, uh, they, they will go out and they'll actually reclaim the soil from places on or near where racial terror lynchings in the Jim, Jim Crow era and before were known to have happened. And uh, the, the point is that the soil is a site of death and memory. The soil is also a site of of, of new growth. And, and so they're, they want to memorialize the soil and also to see it as a site of regeneration. And But I think another part of recognition is seeing how trauma is, as you pointed out in your story, is, is right in the heart of scripture. So we can read, say, the book of Jeremiah as a kind of testimony to what it means to bear the history and tradition of a people who have always understood that life is fragile and vulnerable and that at any, any given time, like our lives could be taken away from us and our ways of life could be taken away. And so when Jeremiah 4 you know, says, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. The walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. And this to me sounds a lot like the veterans that I work with who've returned from deployment, who are experiencing PTSD. And it suggests that the biblical writers knew something of that experience. 
And I think Christians affirm that it that the Eucharist is hard. The body of Christ is broken in the Eucharist. But of course, we don't just celebrate the broken body of Christ, but it's also the resurrected and ascended body of Christ and the affirmation that in Christ's passion, that God was bringing the the worst of human trauma right into the very heart of God, and that God God knows, God feels in the person of Christ uh, what it means to be broken and abandoned and uh, to be mourning and grieving and, and left behind. And, and that's right in the heart of God. And that means that, that our, our suffering is in the heart of God and God's love is available to us right in those places and uh, as, a, as a capacity for growth. And then I think we can also uh, advocate for justice. I mean, trauma, again, is never just individual. It's always collective. It's always communal. And so one way to think about the church's work of seeking justice is to seek a world in which these pervasive forms of trauma, whether it's childhood sexual abuse or whether it's intimate partner violence, whether it's war or whether it's racial violence, don't occur. People don't have to live through these kinds of experiences because we live in a world where uh, people are treated with the dignity that accords to us as creatures of God, as, who bear, bear, bears God's image. Um, and then I think that can lead to hope, that hope uh, arises out of this, this promise of, of justice, of God making all things right. And I think the church is a, is a way to continue to say that even in a world that things seem so hopeless, if we can extend a hope. And then I think another thing that uh, Christians can bring is, is connection and community. This, uh, this promise that you know, we are knit together as the body of Christ, that we are to bear one another's burdens, that we are to uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so for trauma survivors, the church uh, can be, I think is often, a site of profound connection and being known and of care. But it's also a site of calling people into vocation. And so uh, to say to someone, you have um, survived trauma, you're now finding ways to survive and to live amid trauma. So what then does it mean now to be called to particular forms of vocation in the church? Um, what does it mean for you to be uh, a, a part of the church's mission? To whom are you called? What specific gifts do you have as a result of your experience and the ways that you've grown in that experience do you have to offer to others and to God? And I think the church can be a site of calling in that way much more than any mental health treatment uh, setting can. And I think the church has really profound resources to offer that can be profoundly healing. Of course, the church can also be profoundly harmful to trauma survivors, can be the site of trauma, can even be the very physical site where trauma happens. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, we're called right. to be a site of healing. And I think that that's really deeply important. Yeah. And again, this comes back to the point you made about entering in rather than avoiding. So I think that if, I, if, if I'm dealing with someone who I know is hurt and wounded in a particular way, out of compassion, out of great intentions, what I want to do, and it's it's the right instinct, is to be, of course, gentle, um, but also maybe to avoid anything that could possibly be upsetting or to stir anything up. And there is, there's, um, gentleness is always called for, but avoidance is not the same thing. Because as you said, somebody who never hears their experience named or touched at all, because we don't want to, you know, we don't, we don't say the words, we don't tell the stories, we don't read those Psalms that can actually be harmful because then I'm even further alienated. What I've experienced is never said in the context of worship or prayer. And so 
to whom shall I go? You know, where, where am I supposed to go to hear this except the therapist's office? And the therapist's office is wonderful. It's also not the altar of God. It's also not the gathering of, of the people of God. Those are different things. You know, therapy is awesome. You know, if you can, if you have a, find a good therapist, you want therapy, you can afford therapy, your insurance pays for it, go to therapy. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. I'm so glad that we've also been able to talk about other things that don't yeah. involve needing to pay someone for a service because there are gifts that we've been given as humans and as Christians and as the church that cost, financially speaking, nothing to receive and nothing or close to nothing to share. And so it's important to recognize that people, you know, people with the most resources can afford the most healing, the most specialized care. And as Christians, we should not be satisfied with that, that healing comes with the more money you have. Because of course, when Jesus said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, they were shocked for a reason, because rich people were the ones who can afford you know, good health care, good education. They have lots of kinds of trauma. They're probably not prone to suffer. And so it may appear that, yes, they have a leg up on being healthier, nicer people than, than other folks. Yeah. So oh, that's yeah, harder no, that's for right. them. That's right. That's right. It's like this accrued, uh, accrued like resources that we don't personally, you know, we can't personally, we, that are received by us as a result of like just having a digital margin over generations sometimes. And so, yeah. So I'd like now to flip to a final question that I've been wondering about, and that is, what about trauma in church leaders' own lives? Um, the Wounded Healer is the Wounded Healer is a great book. It's very inspiring. I know it inspires a lot of people's approach to their own ministry, but it does have its limits, of course. Uh, so, is there any word that you would give to folks? who say, you know, I'm never going to be perfect. Um, I even in some ways would like to minister in healthy ways from the things that have affected or wounded me in my own life. But how can that be done in healthy and the most effective ways? I would just say, so all clergy out there who are trauma survivors, and that is a lot of people, I mean, a big proportion of uh, those who are clergy, uh, is that it is good that you are bringing all of your experiences into the work of ministry. It's good that you're able to uh, to serve those uh, uh, with your whole experiences uh, in mind. And so it's it's good that you're called and you have a absolute you know it, it, that's a particular kind of a vocation to bring in those experiences and to lead in a trauma informed way, um, so as to be part of the healing and part of the the way that the church uh, can heal. Um, it's also just really important to uh, think about how we can only serve as, in my case, as a psychiatrist and a professor, in others' case, as a, as a pastor or priest or clergy person, um, if we're attending to the way in which those experiences are resonating in our own lives. Uh, and so the need for really good systems of support, maybe outside of a specific congregation that one is appointed to, is really important. Uh, the need to have worked through and to have worked with uh, therapists and others uh, to make sure that, like, that the, the kind of trauma that we survived, that we have uh, uh, those, again, systems of control and connection and meaning that are intact, you know, when things get hard in the work of ministry. It's really important to maintain rhythms of Sabbath, to uh, attend to how uh, pastors and clergy are caring for their bodies in healthy ways, um, whether that's eating or sleeping or uh, rhythms of rest and renewal. 
Um, it's really important to have people that really have your back that you can go to even when things are hard. And I think maybe it's even, it's most important perhaps to be really attentive to how shame operates in ourselves and also in those that we serve. Um, I think if, if through like dealing with, and shame is often associated with trauma unfairly and unjustly, but it is often kind of legacy of how people respond to trauma. If we seek to, um, to kind of deal with our own shame by over-functioning in our professional capacities, by like being the pastor who's going to meet everybody's need and, and, uh, and who's you know, going to be liked by everybody, then that's going to lead to, to, to burnout and to disillusionment and uh, to just uh, exhaustion. If we deal with shame by uh, finding ways to like just you know, position ourselves around people who are going to affirm us in particular ways, and that's going to lead to dead ends in the work of ministry, um, if we do with shame by just avoiding, you know, hard events, that's going to be hard. So I think really being able to do the work of what does it mean to be able to engage uh, shame as it happens in ourselves, as it happens in myself, and also as it's happening in the communities that we're serving. And often when clergy or trauma survivors absolutely are deeply needed in the church and in the work of ministry, and it's really important to attend to those like rhythms of rest and self-care and community and accountability and support to make sure that that work is sustainable over the course of a lifetime. This is just, this is a theme that I've just heard throughout our whole conversation is uh, healing is to place us in lives that are good, simply uh, in a certain yeah. way, just very simple. Yeah. Yeah. And communities that are strong, right? Oh yeah. And communities that are strong. Thank you. I'm such an individualist. Thank you for <laughs> reminding me. <about> community. <laughs> uh, Dr. Warren Kinghorn, it's been a delight to talk to you today. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you very much, Amber. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast. And you know, once in a while, I gotta give a shout out to our magazine. It is awesome. This ministry has been kicking since 1878. The magazine, obviously not the podcast. And it's a unique publication for Christian leaders, especially Episcopalians and Anglicans. Please visit livingchurch.org to subscribe today. And we'll see you back here in two weeks when we continue our series on climate change, creation care, and Christian leadership with Mark Purcell of Arasha USA. He and I chat about communicating with other Christians about the environment and how mainliners and evangelicals might collaborate. As always, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it has been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.